It's a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. And it's been a real blessing to be at Cedar Lake campus for over three months now. So greetings from Cedar Lake campus. And the question I get from almost everyone is, how are you guys settling in? How are you adjusting? And so the answer to that question is, so far, so good. Uh, we're doing well. We, are, we just, have a, just got a house, so now we're in Cedar Lake, uh, enjoying being here. I don't quite feel like a local yet, but we've had our first guests in, and I walk around showing them things like I am a local, pretending like I know what I'm talking about. So we went, about a week ago, we went up to Chicago, and, you know, I'm taking them, oh, this is a magnificent mile, like I've done this a hundred times, you know, let's go, taking them up there, and I, I wanted to point out the Chicago Tribune building, because that's one of my personal favorites, all the stones from around the world. And then I stumble upon this ginormous statue of Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe, right? You guys seen that? Anyone seen that thing? I think I have a picture of it, right? So it's Abraham Lincoln. He was tall, but he wasn't quite that tall. And he was, he's showing an, a, a, you know, a current modern man, uh, or somewhat modern. He's showing him the Gettysburg Address, and he's explaining it. Now, I just found this out. This statue was in Crown Point before it was in Chicago. Did you know that? Of course you knew that, right? <laughs> I've always been fascinated by Abraham Lincoln, my favorite president. Just got done reading a book a little while back on his struggle of faith and what he believed. Very fascinating book. But one thing I respect about Abraham Lincoln was his honesty, his integrity, and his courage. He always said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and he was willing to fight for the rights of all men, regardless of race. But I don't know if you knew this, but not everyone liked Abraham Lincoln, right? There were somebody, some people that disdained him. In fact, there was a group of men who formed a mutinous plot to kill Lincoln. It took him over a month, but of course they finally succeeded. And Lincoln was assassinated on Good Friday, 1865. There was, of course, another mutiny that ended in murder on Good Friday, right? The plot to crucify Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Last week, Pastor Steve walked us through the triumphal entry, and he called it the coronation of the king, and that's exactly what it was. And Jesus travels down the road to Jerusalem. He's riding on that young donkey, and everyone's shouting out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches, and they're laying their cloaks and their clothing out in front so that it paves the way. And most people missed the true meaning of that day. But with those that had eyes to see, they knew exactly what was happening. Jesus was riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. He was lauded the son of David, and they said, save us now. All things pointed to this Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean, being Messiah, the king of the Jews. Now, this triumphal entry had happened on a Sunday. And so, four days later, on Thursday evening, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, and then right afterwards, they went to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus spent hours in agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples slept from exhaustion. Jesus is betrayed. Remember, the guards come in, Peter responds, they, they arrest Jesus Christ, and they carry him away. And his first stop is Annas, the high priest, where he's questioned. Then they take him to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, where he is condemned. And then early Friday morning, they take him to Pilate, which is where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27. So I want to read with you Matthew 27. We're going to actually read verses 1 
through 31. So that's a large text of scripture, but I want us to, to really hear the word of the Lord and have it set the context for this Passion Week, okay? So Matthew 27, starting in verse 1, all the way through 31. This is what God's word says. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15, now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ, that word is Messiah? They all said, let him be crucified, And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before them, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. It is hard to read this text as a Christ follower, is it not? 
the incredible pain that Jesus suffered, the, the unbelievable disrespect that was shown to him. And as I was meditating this week on the text, I vacillated between sorrow and anger for how Jesus was being treated. And the mutiny is not over. Every day, people all around us, they commit rebellion and treason against our sovereign king. Blasphemy is commonplace. You see it all around, don't you? Just turn on any one of the cartoons that's designed more for adults than children. You know which ones I'm talking about, right? And at some point, Jesus will make an appearance to honor him? No, to mock him. Yet God remains sovereign. He's in control, and his reign is just as secure as it ever was. So instead, you know, as Christians, instead of developing a self-righteous air about us, I can't believe how blasphemous this was, ours is to meditate on the majesty of Jesus Christ and contemplate our own rebellion, to bow our hearts anew to this king. Now, there's a lot of characters in this text. A lot is going on. There are a lot of people who have risen up against Jesus Christ. I want to just take a closer look at those with authority in our scripture here. The religious rulers, Pilate, and the soldiers. Authority is throughout the text. I mean, think about it. The authority of Jesus is belittled, and the authority of man is brandished. But in the end, the majesty of Jesus speaks for itself. Now, if you look at verse 1, the mutiny begins with the chief priests and the elders, but it began way before verse 1. I mean, they've, they've, been, they've been seeking for a while how they can destroy this Jesus. How can we get him? This judicial and administrative council of the Jews, known as the Sanhedrin, has not gotten along with Jesus, and they've trying, they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this troublemaker. But the goal of the religious leaders is crystal clear from the very beginning. It is to kill Jesus. The thing is, they need to put their heads together. They need to figure out how are they going to accomplish this. Something you might want to know is that these Jewish leaders had no power to enact capital punishment. That was for the Romans. The Romans must do that. And of course, they were far too sophisticated and righteous to take matters into their own hands and get their own hands dirty. But they felt they had enough dirt on Jesus to get the job done. So I want you to look at the angle that they took. How did they attack Jesus? What was the charge that they leveled against him? And from Pilate's words in verse 11, we gather that the primary charge against Jesus was treason. Jesus had proclaimed himself to be the king, and he didn't argue with everyone who shouted Hosanna as he came down the road to Jerusalem. He accepted that praise because he is king. And so the religious leaders pose this potential threat. Jesus is king, Pilate. He's going to cause trouble for the Romans. But I find this curious because Jesus, every time he taught throughout the Gospels, didn't he always teach his followers to submit to the authorities, even Caesar? This is what he says. He constantly taught that his kingdom is not of this world, it's of another world, and that he's a king of a different stripe. As I thought about these religious leaders, was it really Jesus' kingship that bothered them so bad? I mean, weren't they looking forward to the Messiah as well? Weren't they anticipating the deliverer of Israel? Of course they were. Every good Jew was, but Jesus could not be that king. He was a humble Galilean with a modest upbringing. The guy was a carpenter. He didn't even have a mailing address. And so this is not the kind of king that they were looking for. And besides this, the 
Jewish leaders and Jesus, they didn't seem to get along very well, did they? They had some altercations in the past. This has been building for a while. If you study some of the greatest mutinies in history, uh, you'll find that usually there's tension building between the superior and the inferiors for a while, and then something precipitates, something causes it to actually happen. I remember as a teen guy reading the book Bounty on the Mutiny, Mutiny on the Bounty, yeah, that's what it's called. You ever seen that movie or read that book? A lot of you probably have. Most famous mutiny in all of history. And there was kind of this tension going on for a while, but the straw that broke the camel's back was that the acting Lieutenant Fletcher Christian was accused of stealing the captain's coconuts. And then because of that, they punished the entire crew, gave them half of the amount of food and starved them, and then that's what caused the mutiny. I I was reading about a mutiny on a Russian battleship that started with the argument about soup, and it ended with mutiny. But these religious leaders, they're concerned with more than soup. They've been seeing this coming for a while, and I believe the straw that broke the camel's back for them was the fact that Jesus had started to declare that he was God. He didn't deny. In fact, he said, I'm the Son of God, repeatedly. Just the night before this day that we're reading about in chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus had declared to the Sanhedrin that he was the son of God. And not just that, he was going to come back again, riding on the clouds. Well, that was too much for the chief priest to handle. And he tears his robe and he says, he uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? He deserves death. The thing is, as much as Jesus' claim of divinity bothered the religious leaders, it wouldn't have mattered much to Pilate or to Caesar. They'd probably just dismiss him as some kind of crazy itinerant preacher. But if he claimed to be king, well, that was a different story. So the Sanhedrin, they present Jesus to Pilate as king. A king who's treated anything but like royalty. The disobedience in this text, the disrespect, the mockery, it's overwhelming as a Christian as you read this. It's, it's crazy. But here's the main takeaway this morning for you, okay? People rebel against King Jesus, but his majesty speaks for itself. Rebellion takes different forms in this text. Uh, different people are doing different things. But at the core, it's all simply self-centeredness. People want to be king Instead of Jesus, we rebel against the king because we like being king. We want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. Having little children, well, I guess my oldest is 14 now, not that little. But I remember back to the Lion King and Simba who sang that song, I can't just wait, to, I just can't wait to be king. Remember that? And he said this, he says, no one's saying do this. No one's saying be there. No one's saying stop that. No one's saying see here. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way, which made me think that Simba and Sinatra might get along. But we, we really prefer to run our own life, right? We want to rule our life and be in charge. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We want to govern ourselves. We want to be in control. That's why in your house, if it's like mine, there are daily mutinies of children against their parents, right? I don't want to go to bed at 7.45. I don't want to eat that. I'm not going to eat that. We, we want to be in control. We want to be in charge. Something to remember, whenever we're serving self, we're not serving the king. 
You can't serve yourself and serve the king simultaneously. Or maybe another way to say it would be this. The kingdom of Jesus is a threat to the kingdom of self. Is it not? And in this text, the kingdom of self rears its ugly head and attacks Jesus. Starting with the Sanhedrin, consider these religious leaders. They are the masterminds behind this mutiny, right? They're the ones who conspire with Judas. They're the ones that deliver Jesus to Pilate. In fact, they're the ones that convince the crowd to scream, crucify him. What was it that caused these religious leaders and drove them to destroy Jesus? What was it? What, were, what was their motivation? Well, Matthew gives us a little glimpse into their motives in verse 18. He tells us it was envy, right? That's what the text says, envy. This word means sadness occasioned by the thought of another's good. So you see somebody else advancing, somebody else doing well, and it causes you to be sad and you to be angry because you're not doing well or you're not advancing. Do we struggle with the green-eyed monster of envy? You bet we do. It's hard sometimes. You know, you're, you're working really hard. You're trying to get ahead. You're trying to do what's right, but you have this struggle, these struggles in your life, and then you see this other person who seems like they have it all together. I mean, at least from Instagram, that's certainly the case. And it, it's, not hard, it's, not, it's not hard for the envy to creep in, right? And sometimes this envy actually drives us to engineer our lives in such a way that they appear to be something that they're not. We have this image control. We care so much about what people think. And isn't this the struggle of the chief priests, right? This Sanhedrin, they have worked so hard to establish a reputation of righteousness. We are the leaders of Israel. We are the ones who understand the law. We are the ones who are righteous. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he constantly threatens the very foundation of their righteousness, doesn't he? He says it's about the heart. It's about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of the heart comes love for God. He even called them whitewashed tombs and a bunch of snakes. And here in our text, the religious leaders, they're still at it. They're trying to keep this facade up. Look in verse six. I mean, look at this. They refuse to deposit the money that Judas returns to them because it's blood money. What irony. They're the ones who withdrew it in the very first place for that reason. Now they're saying, no, we can't break the law. We can kill Jesus, but we can't break the law. The fact that Jesus was gaining more attention than they were just absolutely drove them bonkers, right? I think they're thinking, we should have come down the road of Jerusalem and people should have been shouting to us, Hosanna. We're the leaders, not Jesus. This is simply a power struggle. And it's a struggle that every one of us has as well. I want you to think about this very seriously before you respond. Do you care more about the advancement of yourself, or do you care more about the advancement of Jesus Christ? Now, with our mouths, we just said, we just sang Jesus, right? We, we care about the advancement of Jesus. He's the king. But in our hearts, do we really care more about Jesus' kingdom than our kingdom? How badly do you want Jesus to be known among your neighbors? How, how badly do you want Jesus to be honored and glorified in your body? Who has dominion over you, King Jesus or your own flesh? Who's winning the power struggle of your soul? Have you surrendered to Jesus? I mean, really surrendered. I mean, I know a lot of people are struggling with addictions that are just debilitating and you've been trying to manage it for a while and 
It's time to kill it. It's time to surrender it, lay it down before the Lord, get the help that you need, have people around you, brothers and sisters, who lift you up. We have to surrender it all. It's complete surrender. For teens and young adults who are in here, I I speak to you because I remember what that was like to sit there and say, do I really want to please Jesus with my life? I mean, do I really want to commit to be pure? I mean, this is hard, and there's people around me that aren't doing that, and, you know, I just don't know if that's what I want to do. Or maybe even just if Jesus is God, or or perhaps you're, you're just wrestling with some different things, and you're wondering, can I do this? There is a mutiny of the soul that every one of us must quench or put down, if we're going to follow Jesus and love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, which is the demand of the kingdom that we heard about three weeks ago, right? We, we had this mutiny and it, and it stirs up within us. It doesn't really take a whole lot of other people. It's inside of us. We want to do what we want to do. And we wake up kind of in that default. Another guy who was struggling and had an inner in inner turmoil was Pilate. Let's look at Pilate for a moment. In this text, he's at the center. And throughout the centuries, Christians have sympathized a little bit with Pilate. I mean, doesn't it seem like he has a desire to exonerate Jesus, right? Uh, Somewhere in the world, he even made Pilate a saint, which I find peculiar. But Pilate was not as much of a seeker as we might initially think. Historical documents tell us that Pilate was a very cruel man. He was a despot. He, he was a Jew hater. So probably his desire to exonerate Jesus is a little bit more of an attempt to tick off the chief priest than it is because he loves Jesus. But ultimately, in the end, he caves to the crowd. And this is quite simply an act of self-preservation. Pilate was the Roman governor whom Caesar had assigned to the province or the area of Judea, which was definitely not an easy task, not an easy assignment. And Pilate had already had a few mess-ups to this point. In fact, he's on kind of thin ice with Caesar right now, and he, he knows that his job is in jeopardy. In fact, in just a few years, AD 36, he will be fired, he will be banished. So Pilate is really concerned about his own reputation. He's really concerned about his own position and his own power. So he's forced with a choice, save Jesus or save himself. What would you do? If you were Pilate, what would you do? And maybe you're sitting there saying, man, I'm so glad I didn't have to make that decision. Wrong. You do. Every single one of us must make this decision. Luke 9 says this. We read this a few weeks back. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we all make one of two choices. To save our life, which in the end, we experience eternal loss. Or to lose our life for Jesus' sake and have eternal salvation. It really comes down to this. And perhaps this Easter season, you are realizing, maybe for the first time, wow, that's the dilemma that I face. I mean, all this time I thought, you know, I could just try to be happy and then add Jesus as an amenity to my life. And so you've maybe come to church, maybe you've been at Bethel for a little bit, and and you've been trying to add Jesus on instead of realizing that it comes down to, am I going to serve self Or am I going to bow before the King Jesus? Am I going to submit to his lordship and follow him? 
Not in perfection. Man, we mess up all the time. But the, the, the point is we submit and say, you are Lord. I am not. I bow my knee to you. James Montgomery Boyce says this about Pilate. When Pilate awoke that morning, he did not expect to be confronted by the greatest crisis of his career. All he expected to do was go through a pro forma trial for which he cared nothing. He would humor the Jewish leaders. Yet suddenly, Jesus stood before him, and Jesus was either the king he claimed to be or he was not. He was either innocent or guilty. What would Pilate do? We know what he did. He failed in his great, cri- his great crisis and condemned to death the very Son of God despite his knowledge of the case, his better judgment, and even the warnings of his wife. Don't let that happen to you. Jesus is before you every bit as much as he was before Pilate in a physical form that day. Are you the king, you ask? Yes, Jesus answers. Is he right? You have to face that claim. If he is the king, say, yes, Jesus, I acknowledge who you are and I want to become your subject today. Bow before him. If you do not, you will bow before him in terror at the judgment. For Pilate to choose Jesus Christ, he must put himself at risk. He would have to love Jesus more than he loves himself and he does not. The kingdom of Jesus is a threat to the kingdom of of self. Well, somebody else who was caught up in this mutiny, some other people are the soldiers. I want to take a look at them before our time is up. The soldiers. And this gets into the, 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 the heart of the text, which is just very, very heavy, right? We, we see this mockery. We see all of this. But in verse 27, we're told that a whole battalion of soldiers line up in front of Jesus. Now, it could have been that the entire group that was there, whatever part of the battalion that was, but it could have been that literally 600 trained soldiers were standing face to face with Jesus. And I was struck with the insanity of this. I mean, is this not insane? Jesus has just been scourged, verse 26. This means that Jesus was beat with a whip. He was beaten with a whip. And many of you know this, but history tells us that beatings and whippings before a crucifixion most often included little pieces of things tied to the end of the leather straps, pieces of bone, pieces of metal, pieces of glass, with really one intention, and that was to destroy and severely damage the back of the victim. And they would say it was a, it was a mercy because then the person would die on the cross faster. But here's Jesus, beaten, bloody, barely able to walk, facing off against 600 trained soldiers. I mean, are you kidding me? I'm sitting there reading the text saying, isn't this a little overkill, guys? And yet, if the soldiers only knew how unmatched they really were, if they only understood the majesty and the power of the one who was bent before them, I was trying trying hard to contemplate what was the motivation that the soldiers had to mock Jesus, to, to do this. In verse 29 and verse 31, and this word mocked, means to play or make sport of. It seems to me that they tortured Jesus simply because they could. They had the ability. They had the power. They had the power. Jesus did not, or so it seemed. Silly them. Pilate also struggled with the same delusions, didn't he? I mean, John 19 tells us that Pilate thought he was in control. Pilate says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? 
And Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God controls the heartbeat of every single one of those 600 soldiers. God is in control. Jesus is in control, not them. But the soldiers, they're operating under this assumption that they were the ones who had the power. What they didn't know was this, that with every slap, every curse, every spit, they were fulfilling the very will of God. They mocked Jesus. They made a spectacle of him as if to say, here's your king. He has no power. We're the ones in control. But oh, how they were wrong. Consider the majesty of Jesus Christ. Despite all this rebellion, in Jesus' rule, it's not hampered in any way. His reign is still sure. He was and is and always will be the king of kings. God's majesty is unchangeable. But notice on this Good Friday, his majesty is veiled. It's veiled. It's not seen by everyone. This suffering, bleeding, quiet Jesus who maintains not only control of the whole universe, but now maintains control of his tongue and what he says and what he doesn't say. He's standing there. His majesty is real, but it's veiled. One of the things that was most remarkable to Pilate, verse 14, something that greatly amazed him, the text says, was that Jesus was silent. And when Jesus does respond, he's somewhat evasive and and almost enigmatic. What he says is, you have said so. Why does Jesus speak this way? Why does he stay silent? I mean, doesn't he want to defend himself? Jesus must remain quiet to fulfill scripture and obey his father. Here's a real ironic thing from the text, okay? Every single person here refuses to submit to the kingship of Jesus. They refuse to submit to the king, and yet the only one who submits is the king. He submits to his father's will. Praise the Lord that he does. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is not frantic. Jesus doesn't feel the need to defend himself. His majesty speaks for itself. And even in his humiliation, there's still so much majesty that Pilate looks at him and legitimately asks, are you the king of the Jews? There's something about him, a majestic dignity of sorts. Could it be that standing, could it be because standing before Pilate is this lion who is also a lamb? And he wasn't the only one that noticed. Pilate's greatly amazed, but his wife describes Jesus as righteous, right? The thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, All the creation is responding with darkness and earthquakes and graves are opened up and the curtain in the temple was torn in two and the centurion says, surely this must have been the son of God. And like the darkness of night cannot suppress the rising sun, the evil in the crucifixion could not keep Jesus' majesty from shining. It could not extinguish the blazing majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. Even as Jesus is fit with this mock robe, this crown, this scepter, Jesus is on display hanging there on the cross as the very king that he is with a sign right over top that says king of the Jews. And as these soldiers shouted, long live the king of the Jews, they couldn't speak more true words if they tried, even if their motives were nefarious. Every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus deserves to be robed Jesus deserves to be crowned. He deserves a scepter. In fact, he deserves for every one of those 600 soldiers to kneel down and actually worship him. And this will happen one day. Even if everyone in this world denies the kingship of Jesus, if everyone says, I I, I reject that, Jesus isn't king, it doesn't change the status of his kingship. He remains majestic. He remains our king. It doesn't lessen it in any way. You know, we could use the illustration of our current president. There are a lot of opinions out there about our current president of the United States. But honestly, no matter what you think about him, he is president until his term is up. Ah, you might say, well, if he was assassinated, then he wouldn't be our president anymore. That's true, and yet Jesus was assassinated like Lincoln was, and Jesus still reigns today. His reign never ended Just because they killed him, he rose again and he's alive today. Think about this. Jesus still to this very day saves even the most evil sinner. And right now, as we're in this room, all around the world, to the the farthest reaches of the earth, there are people who are worshiping Jesus Christ. And and in places where the church is most persecuted, the the church still thrives. It still advances. Even the most heinous evil cannot thwart God's plan. We are coming into the, the point in history when no greater evil has ever been committed, ever. Can, can it get more evil than killing the Son of God? No. And yet, even that is being turned around. Even that's being redeemed. Even that is accomplishing exactly what God wants to accomplish. So yes, on the cross, Jesus' majesty was veiled. But in just a couple of days, his majesty will be unveiled. And you're going to have to come back on Easter to hear about that. How should we respond? As we walk out of here this morning, as we go into the world and we leave this wonderful place of worship and singing to this king, how should we act? What should our attitude be? Perhaps like me, your emotions run the gamut with this text. I mean, you're reading about the sufferings of Jesus and it weighs heavy on you and you feel sadness. And and my sadness kind of morphed into anger as I was reading. Like, how dare they treat Jesus this way. But instead of being angry and and saying, how dare they, I think what we want to do here is we want to pause. We want to realize this, the severity of the wrath of God towards sin. Just ponder this for a moment. This is how much God hates sin, that Jesus would have to endure this level of suffering to be mocked. I mean, is that really necessary? Yes, it's necessary because God hates sin that much that Jesus must suffer the full brunt and the weight of God's wrath poured out on our sin. Jesus became worse than a thief and a murderer for me. I mean, on this day, Barabbas was more desirable to the crowd than Jesus was. And he did that for me. He took my place. I'm like the religious leaders. I care more about my glory sometimes than I do Jesus' glory. I'm like Pilate, 
more concerned about self-preservation than bringing God glory and obeying him. I'm like the soldiers, mocking Jesus when I don't realize the full majesty that he has. Charles Spurgeon said this, oh, that we were half as inventive in devising honor for our king as these soldiers were in planning his dishonor. What a, what a great quote, right? Do I honor Jesus like I should? Or do I underestimate the majesty of Jesus Christ? This Easter season, how can we go out there? We, Pastor Brad talked about How do we go out there and share with people the hope of Jesus Christ? Can we take them and can we point them to the cross and can we say, look, can you see his majesty? Can you see his beauty? Our world is filled with rebellion, mutiny against Jesus everywhere we turn, right? I mean, political corruption, there's racism, attacks on the biblical sexual ethic, just a a lack of sanctity of human life, spousal abuse, child abuse. But here's the good news, that Jesus died for rebels. Jesus died for people who rebel against him, who have mutiny in their own soul. And that's every one of us who is against Jesus Christ from birth. So here's the good news that we go out of here with. Here's the good news that, we, that we, we contemplate and we worship Jesus with and that we share with those that we care about. If you just look at Jesus and if you look at the cross, there's his majesty. Yet, yes, it's veiled. You, you have to, you, the spirit has to open your eyes. But here is a majesty that speaks for itself.